0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com.
1: Thank you. That just never gets old, does it? Love that. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so we're going to kind of Cut back with some of the verbiage this morning real quick at the introduction and just get right to it. We are doing a series of messages that we've called All Systems Go, which is basically a systematic theology. Systematic theology means when you take the 10 or 12 major theological doctrines of the Christian faith that are presented in Scripture, and you look at them holistically, what does the entire Bible say about them? And we started two weeks ago, because last week was Mother's Day, We started with the doctrine of ecclesiology, which means the doctrine of the church. Because the Greek word that is used that we translate into English as church is the word ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And so we talked about the fact that what it means to be the church means to be called out by God. He called us unto himself. It means to be called out of the world into into the kingdom, it means to be called out of death, into life, it brings to be called out of the darkness, into light, but it also means to be called, to be entrusted with the kingdom of God. You see, Matthew 21, Jesus told a parable, the parable of the vineyard, and He told it to the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, and He told them at the end of that parable, because you have not tended the Lord's vineyard, because you have not produced fruit, because you have not taken it responsibly, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is going to be taken away from you and is going to be given to a people. And that word people means Gentiles, nations, the outcasts, those who are on in, in the ditch, if you will. And so Jesus said, because Israel did not do what God called them to do, that God was taking the kingdom of God, that He had invested in them to be blessings to the nations and was giving it to a new people, and that new people is us, the church. And so we're, we're talking about in this particular part of the, the message, which is actually going to be probably one more week, that we're going to spend three weeks on the church, because it's so misunderstood. We're talking about it in the against the backdrop of this statement that I've heard people make for 40 years, and perhaps you've heard people make it, and at one time maybe you even said it yourself. People I've heard say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the church. Hmm. And the question is, is that a statement that when you line it up with the Word of God can stand the inspection of God's Word? Can you honestly say, and God accept that, and it not be in contradiction to His Word, I love Jesus, but I don't believe in the church, or... I love Jesus, but I don't care for the church. Now, what we're going to do today, again, is we're going to look at the relationship of Jesus to His church. And each time, we're going to look and say, now, does that match up? Can you really take that statement? Okay, I I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the church. Based upon this relationship, these pictures that we're given in the New Testament of how Jesus feels about the church the universal church of all believers of all time, but also local expressions of the body of Christ, that can that statement genuinely be made by someone who has genuinely been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Can those two coexist together? You know, when when someone says, I
0: love Jesus, but I just don't love the church, what I hear them say is, I love Jesus, but I just don't read the Bible much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because here's the question. Can you really read the Bible and make that statement? And mean it and believe it. Can can you really know what the Scripture says about his relationship to the church? So what we find all through the New Testament are these images, these metaphors that Jesus uses to show us how he relates to us as individual believers, but also as we are collectively a part of what he calls the ecclesia, those ones he has called out into the church. And this morning we're going to look at six of them. There are more than this in the New Testament. There are six major pictures, major metaphors of his relationship to the church. And the first one is, Derek is going to talk about, it says that we are the bride of Christ. The bride of
0: Christ. In other words, this first picture demonstrates something about the nature of our relationship with Jesus. It is a love relationship. Our text uh, for this portion comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul here deals with the roles of husbands and wives within the context of Christian marriage. And that is an important word Christian marriage. It's a passage that you've likely heard before. Uh, and, And it's unfortunate because wives usually get the brunt of attention when it comes to this passage, despite the fact that actually the brunt of responsibility falls upon the husband. The husband has a far taller task. Then the wife does, but nonetheless, we're going to look at what Paul says to the wife because in this illustration, we are as the church, the wife, the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own
1: husbands as to the Lord. He's young and foolish. So he's leading off with this text this morning. Hey, it's a good text. It it's, is a great text.
0: It's a text when it's understood when it's in its understood. right context. When it's it. So we got to get some understanding. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In other words, the wife or the bride in this picture is us the church. So as the church, we have some things that we can learn about the nature of submission, the kind of submission that we are called to in this love relationship with Jesus. Now, I want to say two important details this morning regarding this word submission, because it's a word that's misunderstood greatly. It's a word that's been abused. It's a mm-hmm. word that lacks a tremendous amount of clarity. and I've never weight. seen
1: women abuse it, but I've always seen a lot men. of men
0: abuse it. Always, <laughs> Always men who abuse it. Yes. So, so I want to give you two important details regarding this kind of submission. Number one, it is a self-serving submission. Mm-hmm. Now, now get that. It is a self-serving submission. Here's what I mean by that. The word here in this text, submit, is in something that the Greek has called the middle voice. We're gonna do a little bit of grammar this morning, so hang with me. If grammar's not your thing, uh, then just I'll try to make it as simple as possible. of you that possible. didn't like grammar,
1: go to sleep for a minute. Go to sleep up. for a minute. No, but you oh, need to no, get this. That's, that's
0: heresy, isn't it, Barbara? They're you, not like
1: grammar. <laughs> you need
0: to get this. It's important. So in English, we have the active and the passive voices, okay? Active and passive voices. In the active voice, the subject is the one performing the action, okay? So let me give you an example. In the sentence, the boy kicked the ball. The boy is the subject. He's the one performing the action, which is what? Kicking, active right? Voice. It's the active voice. In the passive voice, the subject is no longer performing the action. The subject is the recipient of the action. So you could say the boy was hit by the ball. The boy's not doing anything. He's standing there minding his own business. He gets hit by the ball. He's the recipient of of the action. Because he misunderstood submission and his wife exactly threw a ball at his face, exactly, yeah. In the Greek, there is a third voice, it is the middle voice. In In the middle voice, the subject performs the action but with special interest to itself. In other words, by acting, the subject will receive some kind of benefit for that action. That is what is happening here. Paul is saying, when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, he's saying, wives, submit to your own husbands for your own benefit. Mm-hmm. So people ask, and, and we just alluded to it, that, well, what about in the cases of abuse? When a husband is actively abusing his wife, should she continue to submit? Pack his bags and kick his butt out. It's in the middle voice. What does she have to gain? There is no, there is nothing, there's no special benefit from submission to a man who is abusing you, okay? There's no benefit there. This kind of submission is voluntary. It recognizes a self-serving purpose. Ladies, let me just ask you a question, okay? Those of you who are married or those who you, who hope to be married, if you knew that the man that you were going to marry or are married to would always love you, would always nurture you, would always cherish you above all things, would always protect you from any potential danger, would always put your needs above his own to sacrificially serve you in all things, would you not want to submit to a man like that? Yeah. Would you not feel protected? You'd be crazy not to. In the same way, the church then recognizes it is in our own best interest. We are better off in submission to Jesus than any alternative. Why? Because we know that Jesus will always love, always protect, always care. He is loving. He is caring. He is protecting. So when we submit, it is a self-serving kind of submission. We stand to benefit from something when we do this. We're better off in submission. Secondly, it is a specific submission. This is so important. Understand this. Paul, just prior to this, literally the verse before this, says to all Christians... Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I want you to to get this. I want to be very clear about this. The idea that submission is uniquely female is false. It is wrong. Submission is not a female attribute. It is a Christian attribute. Right now, in our Bible studies, this morning, in 1 Peter, we've been in a verse-by-verse study for 15 weeks now. This morning, just by the Holy Spirit doing this, this was not planned, we are discussing wives and husbands in our Bible study. Peter deals with that in his, in his uh, letter as well. But over the last three weeks, we've been talking about submission. First, three weeks ago, we talked about submitting ourselves to governing authorities, to the emperor. Last week, we talked about submitting ourselves to those who are in direct authority above us. The the actual ancient context was the slave-master relationship. We don't really have that today, but we do have like an an employee-boss kind of level. Uh, There are a couple of other instances where that works out. It is not a a female attribute to be submissive. It is a Christian attribute to be submissive. Even here, Paul in Ephesians 5 is telling, all of you submit to one another, Mm -hmm. but here, in this context, this is a special, sacred, and specific kind of submission. And I want to say to you, women who are single, if you're not married, it doesn't apply to you. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Keep moving along. You don't have to do this. It is not that he is saying wives submit to all men in the church. That's not what he says. He says wives to your own husbands, a special and sacred, specific kind. Now, what is the context? Well, how does that apply to us today? Here's what it means the church submits to no one but Jesus. That's right. That's it. Only Jesus. So in this image, in this first image, we see the church is the bride of Christ. And, and I want to say this, Paul is going to end this passage in Ephesians 5.31. After he's just talked about husbands and wives, he says, this mystery is profound. What do you, He's like, everything I'm saying to you is profound. It doesn't make any sense. It's a mystery. That's right. And then he says this, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So let me give you a truth that I give to Couples, when I officiate weddings, I think it's an important one for married people to think about on your day to day interaction. Your marriage will either tell the truth or a lie about Jesus and the church. And our prayer is that it always tells the truth. Now, let's be honest, there are going to be days it tells a lie because we're imperfect people who need the grace of the Lord. But the hope is that when people look at you and they think, you know what, he's a Christian or she's a Christian, and I don't really agree with them, and I think they have some weird stances, and I think they're narrow-minded or whatever, but I do know this, I'd love a relationship like that. You're telling them something about Jesus and the church in that, in that <clears throat> illustration.
1: That's right.
0: We are the bride. Second,
1: we are his branches. You know, and I, th- I think the, the, the incredible thing about this, now just think about this practically, okay? So say, okay, I like the bridegroom, okay? <laughs> I like Jesus, but I don't care much for the bride. So Jesus says, I want you, but I want your bride. Somebody comes to me and says, James, I want to be your buddy, but I don't want everyone to see your wife. I go, well, then you don't get me. She's my bride. We are one. And to say that you can separate Jesus and a relationship with him from the bride that he gave his life for and is coming again to receive unto himself is foolishness. You cannot say and match it to Scripture I like Jesus, but I don't want the church That's right, because the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. The second thing is that we are His branches. This is a beautiful imagery in the the New Testament. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, this is a, a rich picture of the relationship that Jesus has established between those of us who are Christ followers individually, but also for us who are Christ followers collectively as His church. In fact, this image gives us a number of principles that apply in the believer and the Christ relationship. Let me just point out three of them for you very quickly this morning about how Jesus views himself in relationship to his church in the context of this metaphor of the vine and the branches. First of all, there is the principle of priority. Now what Jesus says, he says, I am the vine. And then another place in John 15, just right after that, he re- reiterates it and he adds a word. He says, I am the true vine. Now, what Jesus is saying to us is he's reminding us that there are false vines out there. Just like there are false prophets and true prophets. Yep. Just like there are false teachers, true teachers. Just like there are false shepherds, true shepherds. There are false vines that you can attach yourself to, or there is the true vine, which is Jesus. Now, sadly enough, not everybody today who speaks about Jesus is speaking about the biblical Jesus, are they? You get that? You understand that? Okay? Every Christian, so-called Christian cult, where they go wrong, drastically wrong, is their understanding of who Jesus is. They talk about Jesus, but when you examine what they mean by Jesus, you quickly figure out that's not the Jesus of the New Testament, that's another Jesus, that's another vine, that's another teacher, that's another prophet, that's not the true vine. So who is the true vine? Okay, let's just do it right quick, let's just sum it up. The true Jesus, the true vine, is the one who is co-equal with the Father, who took upon Himself human flesh, who then lived a perfect life, laid that perfect life down as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, rose from the dead on the third day, defeating the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then sent the Holy Spirit to dwell permanently within us, and is someday coming again, as the Scripture says, to receive the bride. That's right. To take his bride unto himself. Now, that is the true Jesus. That's the true vine. And anyone who says, well, I, you know, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't know about this perfect life stuff and and I think the cross was a bad, was kind of an accident, or maybe He didn't even really ascend on the... You quickly can say, well, you're not attached to the vine because the vine you're talking about is not the true vine. It's another vine. So Jesus said, first of all, you got to understand this, in relationship, you got to be attached to the true vine, not just any vine, okay? Second is the principle of purpose. Jesus repeatedly said in John 15, I am and you are. So he's assigning purpose. He's assigning roles. He says, I am the true vine, and what are you? Come on. You're the branches, okay? So I am and you are. So when you look at the the vine and the branch, they have completely different purposes. In fact, the branch has no life in itself. In other words, the branch is not rooted in the soil, that's the vine. The vine is that which is rooted in the soil, and it is the vine that has life. The branch has no life in itself. So what is the purpose of the vine, and what is the purpose of the branch? Well, the purpose of the vine is to give life. The purpose of the vine is for its life to flow into the branches. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man over and over and over only spiritual life is found in Jesus. The branch has none. That's right. So the role of the, the purpose of the vine is to move its life into the branch. What is the purpose of the branch? The pur- hmm? To bear fruit. You're right. We're going to get to that. Don't steal my thunder now. The purpose of the branch, and I want to say it in a little differently way before we get there. The purpose of the branch then is to receive that life and to reflect that life. Think about it. So the vine has the life, and the life flows from the vine into the branch, and so the branch then must be abiding, the Scripture says, in the vine, so that the life of that vine can flow into the branch so it can receive it, but then so that it can reflect the life of the, of the vine. And we're going to talk about it in a moment how it does that. So here we are. What is this relationship of Jesus to us individually as Christians and to the church at large? Well, He's the vine. And we're the branches. He's the true vine. We're the branches. The purpose of the vine is to give life. There's only life in Christ. The purpose of the branch is to receive that life and then to reflect that life. And so then that brings us to the third principle of the vine and the branch. It's the principle of production. So the question that branches are asking all the time, because inquiring branches want to know, right? Right, right. How can I produce fruit? Okay. How can I produce fruit? And here's the vine's answer. You can't. Stop trying. You can't produce fruit. That's not even your job. It's the job of the vine to produce the fruit because it's only the vine that has the life that can produce the fruit. The branch has no life. So the branch can't produce fruit. The branch can only bear fruit. And the only way the branch can bear fruit is when it is attached to the vine and it is receiving and it is reflecting the life of the vine. Mm. And just as there are true vines and there are false vines, there are also, even in this text, there are true branches and false branches. Because Jesus goes on and says, now some of the branches that are in the vine, they're not producing fruit, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. They're not producing fruit, and so they're useless because that means they're not attached to the vine. They're just, you know, hanging there, and so there's none of the life of the vine flowing into the branch, and that's why the branch does not have any fruit. So what does the vine dresser do? He comes along and cuts that branch off and prunes it out because it doesn't have the life of the vine. Mm. But the vine that abides or the branch that abides in the vine, Jesus says in this text, will bear fruit. So what is it then that is the reflection of us as branches and of the body of Christ together? What is it? Is it reflects that we have received his life and that we are now reflecting his life? It is the fruit. The character of Jesus being demonstrated, being emanated from our lives. Are you with me here? Now, this is the relationship. Jesus says, look, I'm the true vine, and you're the branches. My job is to give life. Your job is to receive and reflect my life. How do you do that? You simply abide in me, and I will allow you. I will produce fruit so that you can bear my fruit. See, at the end of the day, folks, all a branch is is a grape rack. Mm. That's all we are. We can't produce the character of Christ. Only Christ can produce the character of Christ in us if we are attached to the vine. And if we're allowing his life to flow into us and then he produces the fruit and then all we do is we display the fruit. We bear the fruit. That's why in this text Jesus said, never said that the branches produce fruit. He said branches bear fruit. They carry fruit. They display fruit. Now here's an interesting thing. And I had forgotten my illustration in the first service, and so while he was teaching the first point, I had to run out to my truck. People thought, James, really need to pee real bad. No, I didn't. i had forgotten my illustration out in my truck. Now, somebody tell me what this is. Okay. What do you see here? You see grapes, don't you? There is a branch under here, folks, but you don't see it. Because the purpose is not to see the branch. The purpose is to see the fruit. And the fruit that is on this branch is, is testimony that this branch, before somebody cut it off to sell it to me, was attached to the vine. And that vine's life was flowing into that branch and producing this fruit to the extent that you don't even see the branch because it's not about us branches. It is about the fruit. Now, what is this? Get your grimy fingers off of my fruit. What is this? Hmm. That's a branch. That is ugly. U-G-double-L-Y. That's right. That is ugly. In fact, the only thing uglier than a branch with no fruit on it that I can imagine is feet with no shoes. (laughs) I don't want to see your calluses and your corns and your old yellowed toenails. Come on. Cover them up with shoes. Cover your branches up with the fruit of Jesus. Are you getting this picture? This This is such a rich picture that Jesus says of his relationship to us as the vine, as the branches. And there's not just one branch, but the, the whole vine is covered with branches. That's an illustration of the, of the church. And what does He want to do? He wants to produce His fruit in us individually, and He wants to produce His fruit in the church collectively. Don't tell me you love Jesus, but you don't want anything to do with the branches. The third image is we are His building.
0: You know, Jesus is, is called uh, you know, the servant of David, Yes, he's from the lineage of David, so it's almost like we're we're Branch Davidians.
1: <laughs> we're not. I'm just kidding. It's just oh, a joke. Oh man, I'm, my, sure that, I'm sure that David had, that you know David what Koresh, he preached that one time.
0: You know, I uh, I did a cults class on Wednesday night for a while. We we talked about that group, and I got a call from the Branch Davidians. You did? I did. They're oh, still wow. they still exist. Yeah, they do.
1: There's and a small handful of them in Waco. Yeah,
0: yeah. So fun times.
1: And they, did they want you to come and lead them or did they want no, you? they had some issues. They had some issues with what you said about yeah, them, okay. Yeah. I can understand. And I that. had
0: some issues with them.
1: So yeah, it I, worked I, out. Everybody's got issues. It worked
0: out well. It worked out well. Everybody's Number three, we are his building stones. We are his building stones. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uh, tells us of an important principle that is still uh, applicable today, that, that having a firm foundation is very, very important to the integrity of the structure built upon it. He talks about the wise man who builds his house on a rock and the storm comes and the home stays because it is anchored to a firm foundation, unlike the unwise man who builds his on the sand. And it is true today as well. With all that we know regarding modern engineering, Modern architecture, you can have the most precious materials in the world. You can have the most skilled builders in the world. And if you have a bad foundation, your structure will eventually fail. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus is our foundation. There's another text that that he is called the cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? What is a cornerstone? It is the largest and most important stone in the foundation of an ancient structure. They didn't have concrete slabs, they didn't have pier and beam. The way they did their their foundations, they had a cornerstone with stones surrounding it, but that cornerstone anchored everything together. It was the most important part of securing a solid foundation. And Jesus, in the Scriptures, is called the cornerstone. And the church, us, we are being built up upon this foundation as building stones. Now Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses 20 and 21. It says the church, and remember he's talking about the universal church here, not the local. We talked about that two weeks ago. He says the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So get the picture here. This is so important. Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. He's the most important stone in the foundation. But notice what Paul says. There are other stones in this foundation as well that the church is being built upon. What are they? The apostles and the prophets. In the Old Testament, you have the prophets who spoke for God. They were the ones revealing God's divine revelation. In the New Testament, that office is reserved for the apostles. They are the equivalent to the Old Testament prophets. And so the foundation then, understand this, is Christ at the center as the cornerstone and all of those who Christ spoke through by his Holy Spirit. And on all of that, the church is being built. Now, what is the point of having a good sound uh, foundation? Security that the structure is not going to fail, right? You can trust it. You, you understand that if it's on a firm foundation, you can trust it. Nothing is going to happen to the structure. Over here in the kids' building, we have a apocalypse-proofed, Foundation.
1: <laughs> 66 piers? We have 66 piers underneath that, one for each book of the Bible. One And we didn't book do that the purposely. The engineers told us that we needed to put 66 piers because of the, found, the soil conditions, and that it, it, cost some money. It seemed reasonable to us and the Holy Spirit to guarantee do that, right? You, if there's a tornado coming, come to our children's building, it ain't going nowhere. That's exactly right. And if you've ever had
0: a foundation problems in your home, what happens? Your home begins to shift around, the walls crack, things start going wrong, it can mess with plumbing. And so what we need to understand here is that the church is built upon a solid foundation. We're not going to shift around. Mm-hmm. There's no cracks in the walls. There's no internal leaks or problems. We're on a solid foundation. We're built on Christ and on the Old and New Testaments, on the prophets and the apostles. In other words, we're built on Jesus and his mm-hmm. word. Everything that we do then finds Jesus at the very center, guided by his scripture, the Old and New Testaments, the prophets and the apostles. So what is the church? We're his building stones. We're being, brick, we're brick br- by brick. We're brick by brick. We're being built up into a holy temple of the Lord, built on Christ and the scriptures.
1: Force. And, and it's foolish to say, okay, well, I'm, my li- you know, I'm on the foundation, on the cornerstone, but I don't want to be one of them stones. But I don't want to be a part of the building. I have no interest in being right. a part of the building. I mean, it's stupid. It's foolish. Every one of these metaphors that Jesus uses of his relationship to, uh, to, the, to the church is that inseparability, that if you are not in that role, then you are not a part of him.
0: No one that comes to this church, visits the kids' ministry, and comes out and goes, my gosh, this church, we're we'll definitely be out next week. Did you see that foundation? That foundation, I hated the building. The building was terrible, but, but the that foundation. Was cool that was one cool foundation.
1: I yeah. no don't one, even know what the foundation no is. No one says that. Okay, fourth, we are His body. He's a very familiar image, once again, that is used often in the New Testament as a metaphor of Jesus' relationship to the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 20, Jesus says of the church, it's like a body. There are many members, but there is only one body. So each one of us are individually parts of a collective body. In Colossians 1, verse 18, though, I love this. He says this, speaking of Christ, he says that He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So he really defines this relationship here. There's this body, that's the church, with individual members of the body, just like we're individuals. But there is only one head. Now, when you understand the context of verse 18 in Colossians 1, it, it's very powerful. So if you go back and look at Paul's train of thought. Just a few verses. You can see what he's building up to. Paul is establishing here to the Colossian Christians the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. And he uses three illustrations. The last one is the head and the body. But let's go back for just a minute and see how he builds up to that. Verse 15 of Colossians 1 He refers to Jesus, it's easy for me to say, right? Yep. He refers to Jesus' relationship to the Father, okay? So in verse 15, he said, what is Jesus' relationship to the Father? He says, well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at Jesus because Jesus is the physical representation of the eternal Father, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says that he is the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus himself said, if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at me. John 14, 9. If you have seen the Father, who have you seen? You've seen me. Jesus says, you want to know what God the Father looks like? Look at me. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that is Jesus' relationship to the Father. That's pretty high up there. That's pretty supreme, isn't it? And then he goes on and he says, Well, what is his relationship to creation? He's supreme in all creation as well. Verse 16 and 17. He says, He's the beginning of creation. Verse 16, he says, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things have been created. Both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, lions, tigers and bears. All things have been created by him. He is the beginning of creation. You say, I thought Genesis 1 said in the beginning God created. Right. Right. In the beginning, Jesus created, for he is the exact representation of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. If you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. So Paul is establishing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, creation. Not only is he the beginning of creation, he's the end of creation. Verse 16, part B. He says, all things have been created by him and for him. In other words, not only did Jesus create everything, he created everything for himself. Are you getting this? He's the beginning and He's the purpose. He's the very end for which creation happened was for Himself. Not only that, third, He says He is the in-between of all creation. Mm. Verse 17 says, and in Him all things hold together. He created all things. He created all things for Himself. And when He lets go of this thing, the whole thing is going to go to hell in a handbasket. It's all going to explode. And that's when the end time is going to come. It's going to create the new heaven and the new earth. That's pretty supreme right there, isn't it? Who is Jesus in his relationship to the Father? He is the Father. Who is Jesus in his relationship to creation? He's the beginning of creation. He's the purpose of creation. And he's the one that holds all things together. And then he comes to verse 18 and he says, what about his relationship to the church? What about his relationship to us? He says he is the head of the body. Now get Paul's train of thought. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, If Jesus is the beginning of creation, the purpose of creation, and the in-between of creation, then duh, he deserves to be head of the church. Are you getting this? He is supreme over the church, all of us individually and collectively. Now listen, if you are in Christ, understand this, you are part of the church, and to, you, can't, you can't say, well, I don't want to be a part of the church, but I want to be a part of Christ. You can't be, because Jesus is supreme over the church. He is the head of the church. And what does the head do? The head gives direction, doesn't it? You know, my little finger doesn't know diddly squat until the head tells it to do something. My hand doesn't know what to do. It can't do anything until the head tells it to do something. And the head is giving all of these signals to the individual members of the body so that the body works in coordinated fashion. That's the metaphor of the head to the body, which is the church. That Jesus is that head. He is Lord of lords. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And we, when we come into Christ, we submit ourselves to his lordship, to his kingship. Hmm. Does it make sense, biblically, that someone can say, Well, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. I want the head, but I want nothing to do with the body. I want the bridegroom, but I don't want the bride. I want the vine, but I don't want the branches. It's foolishness, folks. They are irreparably, are... Is that the right word? Irreconcilably. They are, yeah, there you go, thank you. See, he doesn't have senior moments yet. You'll get your turn. I'm getting there. Now, let's go on. Come on, give us the priest thing,
0: because this is great. The priesthood, fifth. We are the priesthood. Christ is the high priest. Priest. Now, what, what is a priest? What does a priest do? Is it is, it, is it a guy with a really weird robe and a little white thing? What is that a little collar? Can we agree on that? That's not what a priest is. I'll get us a collar. A priest is a mediator, a go-between, a liaison, if you will. First Timothy two five. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is a priest. Mm. He mediates between us and the Father. But he's not just any priest. He is our high priest, the Scripture says. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So the Scripture tells us that Jesus is not just any priest. He's our high priest. And so that begs the question, what does a high priest do? What is the role of a high priest? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament... Let me give you a couple of the responsibilities of the high priest. There are several, but two of them that I think really apply image-wise to this relationship between us and him. Number one, the high priest offers the sacrifice. And I say the sacrifice because I mean the big kahuna, the big one. On the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. On, on the Old Testament, you have the high priest who comes and offers the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He not only offers the sacrifice... He applies the sacrifice. He takes the blood in the basins and sprinkles it onto the people and onto all the different things. There's blood everywhere. It's crazy. It's a a weird scene. He secures the forgiveness that has been uh, established in this sacrifice for the people of God. But there are some problems. Number one, the high priest is imperfect, he's a sinner. And so not only did he have to sacrifice for the people, he had to sacrifice for himself. And because he had a sin nature, and the penalty of sin is death, he eventually dies and has to be replaced with another high priest. It's a constant The high thing. priest just kept croaking and they had to appoint a new one. Over and over again. Jesus is different. Hebrews 7.26 says that for he, or it indeed was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Mm -hmm. As James just said, he's preeminent in all things. He's exalted above the heavens. He's unlike any other high priest that has ever lived because they were imperfect and they died. Not only that, because they were imperfect, they offered imperfect sacrifices. Mm -hmm. So they had to continually offer sacrifices, not only on the Day of Atonement, but every day, Mm -hmm. but not Jesus Hebrews 7.27 says he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Amen. He offers the sacrifice and it is finished. He has secured forgiveness, it is done to telesti, Jesus says. As we did say finished. in
1: West Texas, he got it did. He got
0: it did. So right. he offers the sacrifice, but second, then he ordains the priesthood, mm. which is us. Ah. Not James and I, all of
1: us. No, we all need to get us a little white collar exactly. if you're going to think about that as a priest because we are all priests. priests.
0: We're all priests to God. In Roman Catholicism, you have to go to a little booth and, and talk to a priest and confess. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. Scripture teaches that we are all priests to God, first. you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's just told us who we are, but then look at the next part of this verse. He tells us our job, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You see, the reality is, is that Christ is the mediator between us, the church, and the Father. He's our high priest. He's our high priest, and we, as his priesthood, are mediators between sinners and sinners. And Christ To take the gospel to the lost. In other words, let me give you a truth. Christ mediates fellowship between the church and the Father, and the church mediates forgiveness between the world and Christ. In other words, Christ, as the high priest, offers this sacrifice to secure forgiveness, and then he ordains the priesthood that mediates that forgiveness into the world. Father Derek... Doesn't really
1: have the biblical ring of Father James.
0: Father James and Father Bledsoe. Hmm.
1: <laughs> Father Knight. Yes. Father yes. or Sister Becca. Yes. <laughs> the priest. It's just a. It's in the a, kingdom of God, you have male and female priests. Yep. This in the true church, the kingdom of God, you have male and female priests, for we are all priests. In Christ Jesus. We are all called to be mediators of the gospel to the world. That's right. You're... So understand this, that
0: when you go out into the world and you engage with other non-Christians, you are acting as an ordained priest in Christ's priesthood to exalt him, to share with them the excellencies of him who has called you into marvelous light. Isn't that
1: great? Wow.
0: So again, think about this. You cannot say, you know, I really don't like this priesthood, but I love the high priest. The high priest has ordained the priesthood to carry out the very thing that he has accomplished.
1: But I don't want to hang out with all these hypocritical priests that he's got. You know, I mean, gee whiz. Well, come join us. There's room for another one. That's exactly that? right. Last but not
0: least, oh. we
1: are his sheep. And, and that we held this to last because this is such a beautiful imagery and it's so rich with information. I'm only going to take five minutes, though, to just kind of wrap this thing up. About Jesus' relationship to the church. Um, And this was an image that needed no explanation in Jesus' day. The relationship of the sheep to the shepherd was very common in that culture. It's not so common in ours, but you've heard enough messages about it, you begin to get a a little inkling of the, the intimacy of the relationship of a shepherd in Jesus' day to the sheep. Of course, the great shepherd psalm is Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, and then the rest of the psalm, David talks about everything that the shepherd does for him as one of the sheep of his pasture. And then in the New Testament, we come to the great shepherd passage, okay, which is actually John chapter 10, okay, where Jesus talks about, I am the good shepherd. But before that, there is an Old Testament text that will give John chapter 10 and Jesus' shepherd discourse much, much more meaning. Mm -hmm. So let me take you back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel was one of the Old Testament prophets uh, about a thousand years before the time of Christ. And so... In in Ezekiel 34, what God has told Ezekiel to speak to his Old Testament people Israel and to the shepherds that God had had put over them. See, God had called Israel to be His people, and He had appointed shepherds over them to lead them and to guide them and to do the things that shepherds should do. And the kings, the prophets, the priests, all of this were to shepherd the people of God. But what happened was that they were not good shepherds. As a matter of fact, these shepherds had acted selfishly, Not acting in behalf of the sheep, but acting in behalf of the shepherds for themselves. Now the result of that, he says in Ezekiel 34, is that my people, God said, are like sheep without a shepherd. There's no shepherd. No shepherd to lead them to pasture. No shepherd to go after them when they're, when they're lost. No shepherd to heal their wounds. You, you've, you've abandoned your role as shepherds, and thus my people are scattered, and they're like sheep with, like, without a shepherd. So God instructed Ezekiel, his prophet, to speak to these bad shepherds that had not fulfilled their calling in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. In verse 2 through 6, this is what he says to Ezekiel, say to them, son of man, this is Ezekiel God is speaking to, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should you not shepherd as shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool, but you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search. Or to seek for them. Now that's an indictment. God is telling Ezekiel, indict these shepherds that I appointed, and they have been selfish shepherds. They didn't do what I told them to do. And then he carries on in verse 21 through 24. Therefore, he says, because of this, I will deliver my flock. You should have, now I will step in and do it. And they will no longer be a prey. And I will judge between one sheep and another, and then I will set over them one shepherd. This is a prophetic statement of the Christ, of the Messiah. He said, I'm going to set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now wait a minute, David has already lived and died by the time Ezekiel is speaking. So he's not talking about literally King David, he's talking about out of the lineage of David, which was the Messiah was to come. So out of the lineage of David, I'm going to set up one shepherd over them, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself, and he will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Hmm. Now get this. This is God is saying, this is what's going to happen, because you shepherds of Israel, you didn't do the job. So I'm going to raise up one shepherd. He's going to come out of the lineage of David. and He's going to do everything that a shepherd should do for his sheep. And then... Jesus stood in John chapter 10, and he declared in verses 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. Now, when you understand Ezekiel 34, all of a sudden that tingles down your spine. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew that Old Testament prophecy. Jesus knew he was God's appointed shepherd to the people. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. Just like those Old Testament shepherds had done. And then the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But he says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 27, 28, Jesus sums it up. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, the part that Ezekiel left out,
0: what's that? is that uh, I'm going to raise up one shepherd, a servant of David, and all the bad shepherds are going to come and murder him. <laughs> that was the part that he did to leave it.
1: That's exactly right. That's what they did, didn't they? That's what and they that's did. That's why Jesus is speaking to them. He says, I'm going to lay my life down, and you're going to be the ones that are going to take it. And exactly. I'm going to lay it down for my sheep. Hmm. And then the rest of the story is I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to be the eternal shepherd of my sheep. What an incredible continuity from the Old Testament all the way to where Jesus stands. Hey, you know what Ezekiel was talking about back there in 34? Me. I am he. I am the good shepherd. Now this is the relationship, folks, of Jesus to his people. Individually and corporately the church. How ridiculous is it to say, hey, I want the shepherd, but I don't want the flock. <laughs> It's stupidity. The relationship, sheep didn't go by themselves. Shepherds didn't have one sheep. They had a flock of sheep. And they did all of those things for the flock. Now get this. Get this picture and then we'll wrap it up. We are His bride. He loves us. We are His branches. His life flows through us and we bear His fruit. We are His building built upon Him, the chief cornerstone. We are His body. He's the head giving directions to us as the members. We are His priest, intermediaries to the world because He has been an intermediary as a high priest to us in the Father. And we are the sheep of His pasture, under His care, in His flock. It is absolute foolishness. To say, I want the bridegroom, I don't want the bride. I want the vine, I don't want the branches. I want the cornerstone, I don't want the building. I want the body, I don't... I want the head, I don't want the body. I want the high priest, I don't want to be a priest. I want the shepherd, but I don't want to be one of his sheep. It's foolishness. This is his eternal relationship with us individually and with us... Corporate. This is the church, folks. This is, the church is not the building. The church is the collective people of God, individually redeemed by the blood of Christ, individually a part of his body, individually a branch on the vine, individually a brick in the building, individually an arm or a leg in the body getting destructions from the, from the head, individually priests called to be intermediaries of the gospel of the world, and individually sheep of the flock under the direction and the love and the care of the good shepherd. I am so thankful that Jesus, when he called me, he didn't call me to be an individual. Me too. He called me to be a collective part of his eternal purpose in this world.
0: And let me, can can I say something as well? You sure can. Parts of buildings fall apart. Some sheep are stupid and they go off and do their own dumb things. Some branches produce ugly looking fruit Some marriage relationships, all marriage relationships, have issues. Are are you following me? Do not look at the church and think, I don't want to be a part of that because every part of a church that I've I've been involved with has had issues. We all
1: have issues. We all have problems. We're all broken. We're all a mess. We all go astray. That's why we say around here, when you become a part of this body, put on your hospital gown and leave the back untied. Right. Quit covering up. Let's just get honest about our infractions as we must get honest with him. Let's get honest with uh, with that. And then we can be the flock. We can be the body. We can be the branches. We can be the priest. We can be the flock of of his pasture without pretense. You can either view the church as a place that could potentially harm
0: you, or you could view the church as a place where you can get it wrong and it be okay. It's all about how you view it you have permission to fail here that's okay that's okay you'll still be loved jesus loves his church that's why he died for us don't let imperfect people stand in the way because you're one of them
1: in in refuge my first book that was published in 2010 i made a statement and i stand by it and i always have the church this church city on a hill is not a place to come and hide If you want to come here and live a double life, we're going to root you out. We're going to sniff you out, and we're going to to out you. This is not a place. It's not meant to be a safe place to hide. It's meant to be a safe place to heal. That's right. And if you want to hide, you'll get found out. If you want to heal... We will take you by the hand, and we will carry you through that, and we will walk you through that. And oftentimes people get that kind of mixed up. Oh, the church is not a very safe place. Well, why? Because you're hiding. Yep. You're living a double life. It should be the most unsafe place for you to come and live a double life. But it is the safest place if you want to heal. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Bless you and praise you for man this opportunity, Father, to look deep into your word. I pray that you will take these theological truths that are difficult sometimes, but they're also very easy to understand. We just wrap ourselves around them and just drive them home to our hearts of who we are in Christ Jesus, individually and corporately. The church, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be afraid of, to give glory to the head, to the vine, to the bridegroom, to the shepherd, for his grace to let us be apart. We pray this in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I think there's a there's a frog floater coming. So you might want to get in your car and head out. We used to call those something else, but yeah, but I I won't use that terminology here.